It's really interesting. You have a conversation with almost anyone, despite the age group, you know, someone who's 18 and just getting ready to vote for the first time and someone who's in their 80s. The first thing they want to talk about is their rights. I have all these rights and my Mm -hmm. rights are being challenged. The reality is with those rights comes responsibilities. And we as citizens must take that back and we must accept that we have a role to play in the short term and in the long term in order for us to fight authoritarianism. I'm Perry Rogers, and I'm a brand specialist. I'm Ed Borgato, and I'm an investor. And our conversations are about the tension between the head and the heart in the way people make decisions and their point of view on important issues. This is The Head and the Heart. Welcome, everyone, to The Head and the Heart. This is Perry Rogers. And this is Ed Borgato. Our guests today are co-executive directors of The Franklin Project, Aaron Dobson and Greg Jenkins. Aaron is a longtime public relations brand and marketing strategist in the private and political sectors. She has led communications for iconic corporate brands, family offices, and startups, as well as serving in a variety of roles for multiple presidential campaigns. Greg has worked in both the private and public sectors as a communications professional and as a journalist covering breaking news and conflicts overseas. He has worked in the White House in a variety of roles and on six presidential campaigns. The Franklin Project is a 501c4 organization. It's comprised of citizen activists determined to strengthen our democracy and fight authoritarianism. The project is dedicated to promoting true American values of democracy and civility. Through the Democracy Corps, they engage and empower everyday people to become extraordinary defenders of a more perfect union. So, yeah, let's get into it. You know, what caught my attention originally, you know, sort of in this sort of genre of of public activism or, you know, you know, sort of addressing the current political climate was the Lincoln Project. You know, they really got my attention because I was following Steve Schmidt and heard about the Lincoln Project right when it launched. And so um, full disclosure, Perry and I have both been donors to the Lincoln Project and followed them avidly and supported what they were doing throughout the 2020 campaign. Seeing what you guys were doing and, 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 and what you launched really intrigued me because I thought, my goodness, you know, if an organization like this could really get, um, find, some, f- find some traction and, and get out there, it could really make a difference. And so I just want to give, you know, the first part of this, you know, the platform to you guys to tell us about the Franklin Project, where the idea came from, um, how you, the two of you decided to come to this and, um, and what you're trying to accomplish. Sure. I'll just, I'll jump in and start. Um, You know, it's not hyperbole for, for us to say that our country's at a turning point. I mean, that's, um, you see it every day in the news, um, these reoccurring questions that we're seeing and the threat to our democracy is, is real. And we see it play out in large ways in the in D.C. And we see it or seen it play out in small ways in school board meetings. Um, And because of that, Greg and I um, were were really pushed to think through what could we do um, that might reengage citizens, normal citizens in this um, this conversation and engagement we feel needs to happen. 
And so the mission of the Franklin Project is to increase civic engagement and um, really push people for a deeper understanding of how that that works. It's also, I think, uh, our, our, uh, our, our part of full disclosure, we are, in fact, a sister organization to Lincoln. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, and the way that, that we view our combined work is Lincoln has been and is terrific at, as you say, at you know, throwing, throwing some elbows. Uh, but what they're doing is nonstop illumination of the problem, uh, naming and shaming, super important. And the reason that that's so important is so that people understand just how severe the problem is and that we're edging ever closer to an abyss from which there's very few instances in history of any recovery. Uh, Where Franklin comes in is once the problem has been illuminated, um, we say, but have faith. Uh, There is a solution. There is something you can do. And in fact, without citizen involvement, nothing's going to change. Uh, There is no incentive, as you both know, at the leadership level, particularly at the national level, uh, to change their ways. In fact, the incentives are built in for them not to change their ways. Uh, Sort of a a metaphor that Aaron and I use with folks is, you know, if you're a small business person, you've got 10 employees and you're paying them to work, but for for four hours out of the day, they're talking to their financial advisors. And for the other four hours of the day, they're bulldozing their colleagues. How much work is getting done? No work is getting done. That's precisely what our paid employees in DC are doing. Literally half of their time is spent fundraising because they have to. And there's no one, it's every disincentive in the world to stop doing that. And the other half of the time clearly is, uh, is bulldozing uh, the competition. Um, and, and they shouldn't be seen as competition. They didn't used to be seen as competition. Um, you know, when we, Aaron was mentioning the hyperbolic aspect of some of these discussions Literally moments before I dialed into this, I was on Twitter and I saw a commentator, um, somebody else retweeting this commentator on OAN saying, well, what do we do with people who are supporting the overthrow of government? Of course, he was talking about the nonsense about the election being stolen from Trump. His solution, mass executions. This is no joke. This is not hyperbole. People are actually suggesting this sort of nonsense. And, you know, most of the country are rational people. <laughs> you know, the extremists are a smallish, um, troublingly large, I guess, is a, is a better way to put it. Very, very vocal and group on the left and the right. And they're, they're driving the narrative. And the rational people, forget about politics, the rational hunk of this country doesn't know what to do about it. They see it. They sense it. Uh, they become aware of how awful it is. Uh, but they don't know what to do about it. That's where Franklin is trying to step in. And we're not trying to do it alone. Uh, we're, we're very much involved in reaching out to partnerships uh, with folks who are in the pro-democracy space uh, to let people know that it's not just us that are saying this. There's lots of folks that are saying this. Let's, let's find the best practices. Let's amplify each other's efforts. And let's give rational people a home <laughs> of their own, a tribe of their own, if you will. And educate them on uh, some fundamental aspects about what makes an American style democracy function. Um, The reason we chose Franklin is because of Ben Franklin's famous quote, a a republic if you can keep it. Well, that's humorous and that's typical Franklin, but what he's really saying is it ain't just up to us folks. 
The other half of the equation is you. And over the last few decades, citizens have sort of abrogated their portion of their responsibility to their elected leaders. Nothing's going to change if that equation stays in imbalance. When do you think that the, that the elected leaders, though, changed? When did it culturally change where they stopped working together, even with the fights that, that have always existed? When did it kind of get amped up to this level? And why do you think that that is? I think you've, you've seen over time a polarization, not just in politics, but a polarization within our communities writ large. Um, Greg and I were just joking about how, you know, I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma and the community that was created there, there was a certain set of norms by which you operated with each other and interacted with each other. And so there was a check and balance. And over time, that started to disintegrate and fragment. And that has given politicians kind of the permission to bring that polarization into um, the, the way they do business every day. And quite frankly, we as citizens are not holding them accountable to actually getting something done. Uh, and the reality is they will continue the way they're going to continue unless we re-engage and demand better um, from our leaders and demand better from ourselves in the engagement process that we call democracy. You know, the last time I think I saw up close firsthand um, meaningful handshaking across the aisles to actually get something done on behalf of the people that put them there wasn't that long ago. It was when uh, Bush 43 and Ted Kennedy, both signing on, agree with it or not, both signing on to um, leave no child behind education proposal, uh, went, went off the rails and things disintegrated as they very often do in DC. But that was kind of the last time at a very national, very public level, folks put aside basic fundamental differences, political uh uh, and, and, and genuinely held political beliefs in order to get something done. I think before that, it would have been um, Gingrich and Clinton after Clinton's impeachment. <laughs> the two of them got together. I mean, Gingrich was gung-ho to have the man impeached. After the trial was over, they got together and they did, what was it, welfare reform or social security reform? Welfare reform, I think, right? And then I guess before that, the biggest example is, is Reagan and O'Neill. Um, not anymore. Not anymore. You know, and Aaron a second ago was talking about the value of community, it, it really is kind of an under, it isn't discussed very much as much as it should be. And when it is discussed, it's sort of discussed in sort of silly Norman Rockwell terms, which is ridiculous. Uh, I grew up in, in a military family and every time we moved, which was every 18 months, um, you were presented with a brand new community and you didn't know them, but you all had the same sorts of values, the same sorts of things in mind. Uh, you cared about each other. Uh, if somebody was in trouble, you did something about it. So there are aspects of community that translate into good citizenship and active citizenship. A actually, the word active citizenship is what we're going for. Everybody's a citizen. That's fine. Active citizenship does not stop at the voting booth every two or four years. It's got to be all of the time. And what Aaron and I are trying to get people to understand is it's really not that big of a deal to be just a little bit more active. And if you are a little bit more active, you get better choices on election day. Um, as it stands now, obviously, the, the two activist wings of both parties are the ones that decide who the nominees are. And then regular, normal, rational people are left with a binary choice. Very frequently isn't a very good choice. 
It doesn't have to be that way if people get a little bit more involved a little earlier. And at a at a local level, not just the we talk a lot about what's happening in D.C. Uh, in D.C., but the reality, a lot of this starts and is even more polarizing at the local level. I mean, I don't know if you guys have followed some of these school board meetings that have been happening lately around critical race theory. It's it's not even a conversation anymore. It's like an active um, warfare uh, in a school board meeting on something that should be at least open to discussion. It seems that we've made this trade. We've um, traded community in and we've received tribalism back. And what Ed and I have talked a lot about in a system of self-governance, tribalism allows the voters the weakest voice. It gives them the weakest say because the one party or the other knows these people are in my pocket. I don't need to worry about their interests. I don't need to address their concerns. I have them convinced that they are better off being with me than anyone else. And there's nothing that they will do about it. And what's fascinating to me is that we've traded in the sense of community and shared values for a tribalism, which makes us all weaker and angrier. It's just such a bad trade. We've also traded in a a, a basic threshold of expectation that citizens ought to be able to have of the people that they're putting in power, right? Um, if, if you if you look at it, and this is it, it's so patronizing the way the way things have become, congressmen and senators care about you about eight weeks before every election, and not after that, and not much before that. If they did, district meetings would be an awful lot different than they are now. So one of the tangible things that we're we want to talk with citizens about is, okay, if you don't ever go to a district meeting, go ahead and go. It's not that big of a deal. If you do go, when you go, when you ask your question of your congressman or your senator, you're going to get a very finely crafted, talking point laden, very specific response. I mean, I I used to be a media trainer, so I used to teach people how to do this. (laughs) So I'm semi ashamed of that. Um, But what we want folks to be able to do is say, okay, senator, good answer. Now, what doesn't get paid for? because of this? And where specifically is the money coming from to do this? And what are the downsides? I'd actually like to, I'd like you to talk about the downsides to this. Put yourself in your opponent's shoes and talk about that. Because those sorts of intelligent, thoughtful, nuanced conversations do not happen. So why don't they happen? Well, if you're a congressman or a senator, you don't need for those things to happen to keep your job. And if you're a citizen, you're just not pushing hard enough. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a terrible imbalance here going on. So Ed, you come from a really fact, I mean, your whole world is fact-based. In in your world, facts are hardcore. They're irrefutable in a certain, is it, yeah. do you see I, that as missing yes. in this conversation? In, yes. In my profession, you uh, accept and adapt to reality rapidly or you lose quickly. And so it's, it is frustrating for me. Um, because I am very civic minded and I'm romantically patriotic and I love to get in the weeds and talk about these issues. Um, And the past several years have been very distressing because I grew up in a time, as I imagine all of us did where, you know, I don't have this um, Cinderella view of the past that there weren't strong disagreements and there wasn't, you know, partisan fighting. But people in this country fundamentally 
agreed on some basic first principles. There was a common identity about what it meant to be an American, you know, and something has happened that has been really alarming. And I think you do have to put it on the shoulders. Uh, I personally, I really do put it on the shoulders of Donald Trump in a lot of ways, because it's not that he is uh, the source of the grievance and anger, the, the undercurrents and, and the bigotry that exists in the country, but he, he definitely animated it with his behavior. He basically said, if you're pissed off, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with you. It was permission setting. I mean, yes, there's nothing wrong with you. I'm pissed off too. And I'm a success. And there's something that we should, as you pointed out, Greg, about expectations, we should expect more from our leaders. We should expect people who rise to a high level in our society to be exemplars of how we want, you know, you know, our children to behave. And, you know, when, when he said um, about John McCain, a guy that lived in a box for five years for our country, that he's not a hero, I thought, well, it's over. This is a joke. When he got when he was able to fade that, I thought to myself, oh, something's something's different. Something's going on. And I don't really know how to diagnose it. I don't know exactly know what it is. Look, we have a very big and diverse country, you know, conservatives and liberals, black, white, Asian, uh, Hispanic, uh, Jewish and Christian, atheists and, and Muslims. You know, we have we're very good at breaking ourselves off into categories. But what are those common identities Americans that we should universally all agree on? And for me, the fact that there isn't 100% absolute agreement that we should be investigating what it is that animated Americans to storm the Capitol and try to overturn the, the constitutional process of, of certifying an election and the peaceful transfer of power, that there is not 100% agreement that that needs to be examined, looked at, and the people held accountable. I'm just really at a dead end and looking for answers as to what has happened. You know, you, you bring up such great points. You know, one of, the, one of the notions that Aaron and I talk about a lot is the notion of pre-partisanship. Uh, you will not find the word Republican or Democrat in the Constitution. There was a time <laughs> when People were more attached to the notion of, oh, this is as the only country on earth founded on an idea as opposed to overthrowing, you know, a pre-existing form of government. Uh, There was a time when we all had the same basic interests at at heart. And the pathway to getting there is obviously why we have two and used to have more uh, political parties. A big part of this is on us for sure. Uh, if we if we continue to rely on the leadership to reform itself and to reform the country, it's not going to happen. You know, so one of the things that we are, are are providing folks are things that we're calling conversation starters that are topical. So we'll take, say, uh, voting rights in Georgia and Texas and, and elsewhere and say, OK, mostly what people absorb in order to form an opinion is what they're told to think by their tribe or the talking points that are very finely crafted without a lot of nuance to help you rationalize your belief, your opinion. And so what we're doing on that topic, for example, we have several topics is saying, okay, here's what the Democrats are telling you. And here's what the Republicans are telling you. That's all they're telling you. (laughs) Now, if you go a level deeper, 
here are some potential motivations that the Democrats may not be telling you about, and same on the Republican side, and then another level deeper. So what we want folks to do is spend just a little bit more time peeling the onion to find out what is not being said to you so that you can form a stronger, more rational viewpoint on your own. So Franklin is not about telling people what to believe. Franklin is is about telling people, dig a little bit deeper, because what you will find are some truths and some nuances that you probably haven't explored before. Politicians tell you just enough to drive your behavior, Mm -hmm. right? Just to get you to do something or to support something. You know, when a Democrat or Republican goes on Meet the Press, uh, they know very well that they're not going on there simply to answer Chuck Todd's questions. That's Chuck's agenda. They're going on there to talk to the people to get them to, to, to pressure back up to get the rest of their Democratic or Republican caucus to go the direction they want to go. It's a game. And the, and the people who are losing in this game are the people who are watching and listening and not learning enough. Yeah. They're, they're getting partial stories. You know, it's it's really interesting. Um, you have a conversation with almost anyone, d- despite the age group. The you know, someone who's eighteen and just getting ready to vote for the first time, and someone who's in their eighties. The first thing they want to talk about is their rights. I have all these rights, and my mm-hmm. rights are being challenged. The reality is, with those rights comes responsibilities. And we as citizens must take that back and we must accept that we have a role to play in the short term and in the long term in order for us to fight authoritarianism. And it's happening. I mean, it's 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 deeply disturbing that we are we are probably, you know, potentially a week or two away from being Venezuela if something you know goes wrong. Um and that that kind of coup behavior actually did happen on January 6th and the, that we want to ignore it is crazy. It's crazy. One of the things I like, um, Greg, you had mentioned the issues that you, that you uh, invite people to have a conversation about on your website. Um, and one of the things I really liked and appreciated was that you, you click down and you have a section where someone can, can see what are people saying about this topic? Right. And I think you do something very smart by not saying who is saying those things, not attributing those quotes to anyone. Because one of the things that I think is really important is to focus on the idea and not the person who holds the idea. Because that's one of the problems. That's one of the problems we found with, with the Trump presidency, because as much as I opposed his but presidency for a whole host of reasons that had nothing to do with policy. I thought it was equally dangerous to have not just a president that a certain portion of the population would believe no matter what he said, but it's also dangerous to have a president that a portion of the population won't believe no matter what he says when it's true. Right. Right. You know, Good point. Just, just, just because Donald Trump lied a lot doesn't mean everything he said wasn't true. Right. One has to focus on the idea. What is the idea? How do I feel about the idea? Not how do I feel about the person? But, but the issue there, though, Ed, is that it assumes that people have the luxury of time yeah. to study these issues. And I guess what I would ask for you, uh, both of you, uh, Greg and Aaron, is how do you deliver um, the burden is going to be on the Franklin Project to create content that's easy to digest and very shareable, because if you're not doing that, you're competing with a world where the disinformation and the misinformation 
um, is easily digestible. And so how have you guys started to look at that and think through that? So you, so you've landed on one of the the greatest challenges that we're going to have over time is these are really complicated issues and they're complex choices and a complex education process that people need to go through. Um, and how do we make it, you know, in branding terms, snackable um, so that people can digest it in a way that is quick and easy. And that is, that is the challenge we have and, you know, are working to address. Some of it is, you know, how do you, how do you take a topic and convey at least here's some questions to ask in 30 seconds? Because that's about the time you, you have with people. And, you know, we really do believe that content is a way to engage people. It's also a tool that we can give teachers to use in the classroom um, when they're, you know, when they're trying to go into the more complex issues of teaching civics in the classroom. But it's imperative that, that we start to start to build that content in a way that people can grasp it quickly. I mean, we live in a TikTok world, let's be honest. But, but exactly to your points, what we're doing right now is exactly the kind of thing that ought to be happening. And you do not have to be an extremely well-read person on any given topic to be able to have a rational adult conversation about issues. You don't know what my politics are. I don't know what your politics are. We're having a pre-partisan discussion right now. Um, and we ought, and people ought to be able to do that. Part of one of the ways that we're going to do that is by presenting things just like what we're doing right now to people. So we're not going to say, go do it. We're going to say, watch it, witness it, and see how easy it actually is to do. You know, on the authoritarian aspect and Trump, <clears throat> I've always believed that Trump Trump did not start out to be an authoritarian. Trump was the lucky beneficiary of a slow march of this country, a large part of this country to embrace tenets of authoritarianism. I would be hard pressed to name an authoritarian anywhere in the world who ran on the platform of elect me, I wanna be your dictator, right? They, they get elected popularly and then they, be, then they start to scoop up power and to such a degree that eventually it's too late to do anything about it. Um, and how do it they happens get before it happens <clears throat> before you even know it? Right. And all even, of a sudden it's too late. <clears throat> and how do they do it? How do they do it? The smart ones, the ones that actually take over places, they provide super easy answers to people who are troubled and are looking for simple solutions. And I think it's it's fairly evident that we can point to past general election cycles where one side has provided more truthful but more complicated, nuanced this or that kind of responses to difficult questions. And then the other side is saying, oh, no, 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 you've been screwed over by those guys forever. The answer is build a wall. Mm-hmm. And that, that should make you happy. And then your jobs will come back and you will be safe. And, you know, X, Y, and Z. It's, it's a very, and, and part of the appeal of that is that this, that people in this country have come to want that. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a, there's an appetite for simple solutions to difficult issues. The simpler, the it's kind better. of like the snackable content. They yeah. want it quick and easy <clears throat> so that they can grasp it. Yeah. It's a tricky, tricky needle of thread. I wonder whether or not, and Ed and I have talked about this a lot. Um, I, you know, there, there's this group in the country that um, now measures in the tens of millions where they simply want to believe the reality that they want. And so, you know, listen, Trump actually won the election. The climate's not getting warmer at all. Tax cuts pay for themselves. I mean, there's this whole litany of 
ideas that that data shows you that's actually not true. That's not supported by truth. And I just wonder whether or not one of the conversations we need to have is that to not be willing to face truth makes you soft. To have that discussion where people feel more challenged on their personality decision and the choices they're making. But instead, I feel like we tiptoe around these folks and we keep enabling this fantasy land to be lived in. And I'd I'd love to hear whether or not you think that, nope, that'll just turn people off or whether that will challenge people appropriately. I mean, I think part of what we're doing and saying that you as a citizen have a responsibility here and it's time to man up or woman up and take your place and your role in society. That's a tough conversation. I mean, the reality is this is not, this is not an easy road. If it was, we, someone would have already taken it. And it's a long, it's a long education process that we face. It took a while to get here. It's going to take us a while to get back out, but we have to acknowledge that there's a problem. And Franklin's goal is to give some solutions to try to address it. We may not get everybody rowing in the same direction in, you know, the foreseeable future, but if you don't start and if you don't educate people, and if you don't try nothing's going to change. And that's, you know, we keep hearing, well, you know, what's the easy solution to this? And the reality is there is no easy solution. And, you know, we as a society have to get over the fact that there's an easy solution to everything. There is not. I have to pay taxes. My taxes go for something. And this is what I get for them. You may agree with what that is or disagree, but it's a conversation we need to have. I think another interesting thing that we need to uh, noodle on and, and grapple with are connecting at frequently more esoteric notions that are very important, like say debt and the deficit to actual people. So you can have a position saying, well, I think it's ridiculous that we've got such a huge deficit. The conversations need to start being, well, what actually does the deficit mean? <laughs> and is it, is it really that bad? Maybe it is. I don't know. I haven't really thought about it. And if it is bad, how does it literally affect me? Does it literally affect me? So our, one of our challenges is to like bring those things closer together. So people can be, have less license to have a very strongly held view on something they haven't really thought through and more pressure on them to really kind of think it through. Another aspect that Aaron and I are, are, are pushing really hard is, listen, we're not telling you what to think. We're not telling you that you have to have an opinion on everything. What we are saying is you can have a strongly held belief on, let's say, immigration reform, and you have permission to have a conversation with somebody who has an opposite, but also strongly held belief on the exact same issue. And it's okay for you to say in the course of the conversation, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and concede that point. You're right. Without being a traitor to your belief, <laughs> you know, without, without considering yourself a fraud, <clears throat> it is perfectly okay to stipulate a couple of points here and there. And it's, and that's, that kind of conversation gets us to a more productive outcome. You know, so you ask yourself, what is the point of government? What is the point? We you know, actually it- saw that we actually saw this play out in real time this week on the vote, whether there should be a debate on uh, uh, the the voter suppression uh, legislation, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and, and SR1. The fact that they couldn't even like 
agree that there should be a debate yeah. on a topic so important to this country is that's total abdication of duty. I think, I think something that a lot of people don't realize is that at the national level, particularly at the national leadership level, Democrats and Republicans, House and Senate, <clears throat> they are more mathematicians than they are ideologues. They say what they need to say <clears throat> that is roughly in alignment with their philosophical beliefs in order to get to 50 plus one. Mitch McConnell is a master at this. Um, and if there are no political repercussions for him and for the party, why change? Mm-hmm. There's no, no reason. You know, self-governance is hard. The whole American experiment is a really unlikely thing to have occurred. And I think it's underappreciated. And I don't know how we reverse that. Maybe it's a question of civics. And, you know, when I went to school, I, I, I loved my civics class and I, and, I, and I had government in high school. And I don't even know if they teach that stuff anymore. They don't. No, it's part of the problem. <laughs> and I, it drives me nuts. And I have this very, you know, romanticized um, idea about the country because I came here as a kid with my family from Brazil. And um, I just don't, I, I just, it frustrates me that people don't appreciate just how rare it is. And what makes us special, what has made us special is the strength of our institutions to the extent to which our institutions are being weakened by the way we're governing and the type of, uh, of governance we're seeing today is, is really shooting ourselves in the foot. And I, 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 think, part of, I think part of trying to find the answer and, and being able to have these conversations is respecting identity. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I mean, and you make such a great point about institutions and, 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 and civic understanding of institutions. Aaron and I have been saying since day one, and we talk to teachers all the time who bemoan the fact that civics isn't taught in the classroom anymore. They know the danger long-term that that poses. You know, I used to be a, a journalist in, in the olden days, and, uh, and I get <laughs> why electeds dislike media because they're doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. And a million years ago, there was a, a, a PSA campaign that ran, uh, I think from the American Press Institute, I would have like a photograph of like, say, Kurt Waldheim. Remember when he was the UN general secretary? And then afterwards, they found out that in his previous life, he had been an SS officer or something like that. <clears throat> and the caption said, if the media, if the press didn't tell you who would, you know, mm-hmm. same thing with the Challenger explosion. If the press didn't tell you who would, you know, people don't seem to know enough to ask that question. Now, you may hate what you read, but if you didn't read it and if they didn't do it, who would you be hearing from alone? The people who have no incentive to tell you the full story. So is the press perfect? Certainly not. Do they make mistakes? Of course. You know, are they 100% objective? Absolutely not. They're human beings. Of course, they're not objective. That's impossible. But without this pillar of our country, we begin to falter. Same thing with an independent judiciary. You know, people have lost sight of what the point of the Supreme Court is right? You know, they have decided that the Supreme Court is liberal and conservative, Mm -hmm. and that's how they go. And every time a case goes, quote unquote, the wrong way, the liberals or the conservatives are all up in arms about it saying, oh my God, look how politicized things are. Well, where's the same sort of discussion today with the unanimous, unanimous Supreme Court yesterday, including all of the conservatives to say, yeah, schools really don't have the right to restrict free speech. 
mm-hmm. um, outside of the classroom, that, that, that sort of thing. Well, I mean, if you're a hardcore conservative, you would be taking Brett Kavanaugh to task. Well, Brett wrote one of the opinions on that thing. Yeah. You know, so when it, when it works for you, you're all, you're all well and good. When it doesn't work for you, it's just another legislature. Yeah. <laughs> right. And if people yeah. had a better understanding of the point of our institutions and the, and the, and the role that they play in, in keeping our country afloat, things might be a little bit different. And, and that spills over into holding our elected officials accountable as well. When it's good for me, you know, I look the other way when it's bad. Um, I want to jump on it and, and, yeah. and call it out. I, I use this analogy before um, Perry knows this. He's heard it a few times, but you know, it's no different. And, and we, what we have to respect is this is just sort of our natural way. It takes work to think differently and, and, and to, and to, be independent minded. And the analogy I, I like to use is if, you know, you're friends with a couple and one of the, one of the, your friend comes to you and says, you know, my, my spouse has been cheating on me. If that person has been your friend for years, you know, them from college, then you only know the, the, their spouse because they married that person. Um, you know, you would be devastated for the person and you'd be very angry at the spouse and you would be very much taking your friend's side against their spouse. But if your friend came to you and said, gosh, you know, I'm mixed up in this affair. I, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I, I don't know how I feel. You're going to be supportive of your friend. You're going to almost let them off the hook. You say, you know, it's not good what you're doing, you know, but I get, you know, I understand you've been having problems. You know, it's like we're more forgiving of the person we're close to, but we're not at all able to give any grace or forgiveness to someone in our out group. And that happens in politics. Because everything has become good, bad, good, evil, black, white. You know, sure. There's, there's no in between anymore. So along those lines, I think also, you know, where we as citizens need to hold hold our leaders more accountable is, you know, we we at one point were a, were a society of ideas and a culture of ideas. And that was what drove uh, the... Uh, appeal of our of our government and what's happened now is if someone has an idea the other one just says that's a bad idea but doesn't say but if you did this and this and this then maybe I could get on board so there so we've also within the trying to solve our problems we've we've everybody just goes to their corners and is like well I don't agree with your idea and so therefore it's just bad as opposed to saying I mean climate change is a great you know, topic for this discussion. I may disagree with some things, you know, here or there, but I'm not coming to you with any rational kind of like balance to what, what, you know, a more liberal progressive agenda might, might be. There was an interesting article in the New York times today about a um, Republican coalition um, trying to advocate that climate change is an issue within the Republican party. And I'm like, well, finally, (laughs) You know, instead mm-hmm. of just saying there is no, there is no climate problem, they are saying no, there is, but we may have different ideas about how we need to go about solving for it. Well, um, isn't it crazy that this country has come to the point that we view people? Let's just say the Senate. We view senators who actually want to work across aisles to get something done as outliers and squishy, right? Mitt, Mitt Romney is no squish. <laughs> Mitt, has, Mitt has got, you know, authentically, genuinely held firm political beliefs, but he's not there 
to just push that through at the expense of everything else. He understands that his job is to work with the 99 other people in the room to try and get something done. I mean, I find it just appalling that this group of compromisers is being castigated by the by the hard, it's not even hardcore, by just like the party faithful on the left and the right and, and marginalizing them. Um, you know, if you, if you step out of line, you're put in a box. You are, you're, you're, you're kicked out True. of the group. You're, you're not part of the solution anymore. You're part of the problem and you do not matter. Yeah. And the only reason that they do matter is because it's a 50-50 split. But if it were a bigger majority for either party, you know, if Bernie, if Bernie steps out of line and it's a bigger split for the Dems, Bernie's out and stays out. Right. And, and then from Bernie's perspective, he's like, well, what am I getting done for Vermont? Nothing. They put me in the wilderness. I mean, what we want out of our leaders is warped. And the leaders are kind of responding to our inaction and, yeah, our, right. and our uninvolvement. Yeah, what we want out of our leaders is to reinforce our identity as opposed to provide good governance. And, you know, you, you talked, Aaron, about uh, climate change as an example, but the, the one that I've been fascinated by is the Affordable Care Act, because 57 times the Republican-controlled Congress had a vote to get rid of it, which is fine. It really is fine, as long as there's an alternative. Right. And that's the part that we should all be demanding. It isn't that the Democrats have all the right solutions, but we should be at a table at least to say, I'll tell you why I don't like it. I don't like the plan because it has these seven things in it. And I would replace them with these three things or with these eight things, something, but that's not the conversation we're having. And not at all. Not when at you're, all. When you're doing that. And at the same time, going to Greg's point, you're weakening the institution of the media. You know what we, we had Tim Snyder on our podcast. And what we asked him was, have you ever seen a country go this far down the road toward authoritarianism? and turn it around. And? Not yet was his answer. And that was scary. And that's exactly why the work that you all are doing really is this critical. You have this big uh, audacious goal as your, as your kind of your byline, um, which is that because democracy doesn't need a hero, it needs 330 million heroes. And so We've talked about the what, but I want to I want to dig down more on the how for you all. Um, it, I did not know, for example, that we don't teach civics in school. Um, and so how do we reengage that? What's your method? How are you going to do this? This is critical. It's the most important thing. We're right at the cliff. I sure hope you guys get a lot of support. I hope all of our listeners get on your website, make the pledge and make a donation. But how do you do this? So, you know, it goes back to some of our earlier conversation around community. Um, we believe that by building a, a community of like-minded citizens, that's, that's the key to this because you have to get citizens active. Um, to build that community, we've launched, launched the Democracy Corps, which the first step is, you know, taking the democracy pledge and, and committing to like exercising some of those those pieces of the pledge. Um, the democracy core is made up of ordinary everyday citizens, you know, my mom, my brother, you know, who are not politically active at all, but mm-hmm. feel strongly that, that, that we're at a crossroads. Um, we have to be committed to revitalizing the, these basic democratic 
principles. So the we feel like the democracy core and by um, by moving people in that to a collective and creating a community for them is one way to do that. And then the other way is through partnerships. There are so many great groups doing work in this pro-democracy space, but it's fragmented and it's siloed. And how do we create a platform where we can shine a light on that work that's happening in those communities and show that everyday citizens, oh, wow, my neighbor's doing that? I had no idea. I could do that too. So it's, I think it's, it's twofold. It's through partnerships and it's through an individual into recruiting an individual uh, group of citizens to join the democracy core. At some point, that gives us leverage and scale to push back on our leaders and say, hey, look, we've got a whole lot of people who want you to behave in this way. Think of it this way. We view this as priming the pump. The way for this effort to fail for sure is for Franklin to think that we know everything and we're telling everybody what to do. That is a recipe for failure. It doesn't work. What we think will work is to let people know that they're not alone, is to tear down some of these silos that exist, is to start to let people build community. When the megaphone is turned around from us to the people, that is when we start to win. If it's just us making all the noise, nothing's going to change. There are plenty of pro-democracy groups out there who are, who are doing terrific work. Some of them, frankly, are, are more concerned with a smart person writing a white paper and having it appear in the New York Times, which is not read by everybody in the country. <laughs> you know, it, it's a, a lot of it is a very high level, very academic stuff. The hard work are lighting up the people who are the only ones who can affect change. That's the hard work. So we're, we're taking a harder path for sure. It's rocky. We're going to make mistakes. But Aaron and I, you know, on the West Coast, we, we sort of subscribe to the, the tech world notion of, you know, break things, go ahead, just, just move, get stuff done and see what works. And we're all about that. You know, there, there's, there's everything to lose and everything to gain, frankly, <laughs> if, if we don't try things. But the more people start to feel, as Aaron was just saying a second ago, Oh, well, you know what? You know, I can I could just load up a couple of people in my station wagon and head to the local school board meeting. That's a beginning. That's a first step. Mm-hmm. And I can expose myself to more rational conversations and it and it doesn't hurt. It's okay. And these baby steps start to build a kind of momentum which so far is absent and nobody else seems to be really trying that approach. So, we're going to give this one a shot and we think this has got a better chance of of making it making a difference. Quickly take us through the six points of the democracy pledge, what you're asking people to consider doing. So, you know, the first and most important is is for citizens to be more active and be a more engaged citizen. Um, and there's lots of ways you can do that. And we, you know, we walk through that every day in the content we're producing. Um, practice civility in, in the community. Uh, and to me, this is this is fundamental to shifting from this polarizing uh, atmosphere we find ourselves in. It's not that hard to be civil. Um, you know, to, uh, my mother, grandmother always used to say to me when I was growing up, treat others the way you want to be treated. And that means to listen. Um, and you don't have to you don't have to agree with someone on everything. Um, I have lots of friends who we are complete opposites on the political spectrum. 
we respect each other's opinion and our ability to have a civil conversation. And, and that leads to the next one, which is champion diversity of ideas. You know, there are a lot of smart people in a room. You're not the only one. Um, and so be open to other people's um, ideas and concepts. Within that, there may be a nugget that moves us closer to a solution on some of these just intractable problems that we're, we're dealing with as a society. Um, educate myself and others um, ab- about different topics. I mean, that's work. Okay, I get it. It takes some time. But it goes to that, res- that, that we have a responsibility and not just rights. Um, in how lucky we are to be a part of this this country. Um, and then I think uh, hold myself accountable and my elected leaders accountable. And we kind of bring it all together by taking the, the tract of, we have to strive for a more perfect union. If we don't, we'll never achieve it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a wise person once said, <clears throat> sort of in the Ben Franklin mode of humor, the definition of conversation is waiting for the other person to shut up so you can start talking. <laughs> to Aaron's point about listening, conversation is about listening, not talking. You know, unless you're just there to shout your beliefs without any room for discussion or 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 adjusting your thought process, what on earth is the point? You know, you can still hold your beliefs at the end of the conversation, but you should emerge from a conversation with a better understanding of what somebody else thinks. And that's fine. And if we start to do a little bit more of that, civility starts to inject itself into the situation. And when that starts to happen, expectation can start to be built uh, for your elected leaders. Um, you know, if, if people were a little bit more involved a little bit earlier, they would find themselves with better choices come election day. You know, um, Ed, Ed said to me um, one time we were talking about a, he had this great line. He said, you know, Perry, we should all know what would change our mind on a subject. And it completely reframed the way I thought about these things. And it's really the best way for me to engage in a civil dialogue with people is to just ask them, I hear you, what would change your mind? And to watch them feel heard, but to also open up and not feel so defensive. Uh, I just think that that's, the right way to approach these things is to ask someone, well, what would change your mind? And, and you know, that, I'm, so, I'm so glad you said that. Aaron, Aaron and I have both worked on, on more presidential campaigns than we would probably care to admit. And before a lot of rallies where you get out there and you say what it is you're there to say, very frequently the candidate will be behind the stage with three or four people from the audience and do just exactly what you said, Perry. You know, Well, here's what I think about education. What do you guys think about that? And that isn't just to make people feel good. That is to have a better understanding of where it really matters, where the rubber hits the road, and then be able to take that feedback and do something with it on the policy side. That's how things ought to be. It's interesting, though, that those sorts of conversations typically, if they happen, have to happen behind closed doors. Because if they happen in the open, you're seen as, oh, well, you don't really have any beliefs, do you? (laughs) You're just catering to the masses. That's right. Just an absurd way to look at you know, how humans should be interacting with each other. And I'll add to that thought, um, something I picked up from Charlie Munger, the vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, who often has said that you're not entitled to hold an opinion until you can argue against it as strongly as someone who actually believes it. And when you can do that mental exercise in good faith and and be intellectually honest and really construct that argument with yourself, as well as someone who actually believes it, 
then you're prepared and you've actually, in his words, earned the right to hold the opinion. And um, it's a tough thing to do. And, and, and again, from his point of view, he says it's a moral obligation to think that way. Harder, hard to do though. I mean, hard to do. people have come to, you know, embrace the notion of this is what I believe come hell or high water, my way or the highway. Anything that does not comport with that is by definition wrong. Well, it's very hard to start a good conversation from that perspective. So right. one of the first challenges is to get people to kind of question why they believe what they believe. It, it is okay. And by the way, I'm, I, I think we should all tolerate that point of view. The person who says, this is how I feel. This is just the way I feel. I think what there can't be room for though, and we have to figure out a way to break the log jam is when someone's belief system is, is, is predicated on a lie. When there's a fundamental untruth, this is where it gets tricky. And I think this is why we're all grappling in this current age, because so much has been fed to a portion of the population uh, that's just outright not true. Well, didn't that just happen with Michigan when the, uh, the uh, mostly Republican group of folks examined all the voting yeah. and came out and said, actually, there was nothing wrong with the voting? Right. Yet, <laughs> yet, right. People in people in in your same tribe have just told you yes it was perfectly legit. Yet you will have a gigantic hunk of an extreme segment of the country saying, "Well, fake news. It's a lie." We've, we've gotten really <laughs> we've gotten really used to creating uh, solutions in in search of a problem. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, when there was no problem. Yeah, that's right. I, I'd like to dig down a little bit more. There's two other topics. Uh, we talked a little bit about the For the People Act, but there's two other topics that are on your website that are conversation starters. You do a good job of telling people, hey, here's how we can can at least talk about these things. You're not telling people what to think. I really appreciate that. But let's start with uh, the January 6th commission. How did you interpret what happened? And are you hopeful that with maybe a select committee in the House that will come out of this with more of an understanding? You would hope, but the reality is because it's not, it's not bipartisan and outside of Congress, it is inherently going to be, I'm afraid, refuted by the folks who don't agree that anything, that it was just a tourist, a bunch of tourists, you know, that wanted to go look inside the Capitol. Um, so, I, you know, the challenge is, Without that kind of unbiased view at this, bias is inherent in it. So I, I have to admit, this is like a core challenge that we as citizens should be pushing back on. The way it was originally proposed and set up was to take bias out of it and to and to be very specific about looking at, exploring, researching, and addressing what the why uh, why did this happen and how did we get to this point um so uh, you know i would like to be hopeful um but until we can as citizens require that our leaders actually be okay with examining themselves i mean if you work inside a company and you you know you you launch a i spent years at nike um, if, if we did a brand, we launched a brand campaign at the end of it, we all got in a room and we did a teardown, what worked, what didn't work. There seems to be a fear of like learning 
from from something you that happens and that's infected how we how we do government and you saw it you see it with the January 6th commission i think what's even even worse is I mean, it would be great if we could have a, an independent body t- to like take a look at January 6th and tell the world what happened. Um, but even that has become infected. Even that approach has become infected. If you look back at um, the independent council during the Clinton times, that's, that's why Ken Starr was appointed so that you could have a completely independent body looking at it. From day one, the Democrats all lined up and said, no, Ken Starr's awful. He's, he's, whether it's true or not, the strategy was to tear down the independence right. value of, the, of an independent prosecutor. To, to discredit the, the, the investigation. Discredit right. it. So, it so, so the impulse is not to get to the truth. The impulse is to get to your truth, whether your truth is based in fact or not. I'm not interested in the facts. I'm interested in continuing to believe what I want to believe. Why do you believe what you believe? Because that's what I've been told to believe. <laughs> and, and it makes me feel part of a, it's a, circle. a tribe. It's awful. Yeah it's, 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 yeah, it's a circle. But through better civic engagement, we feel we can start to address, I mean, to, to take it home to, you know, yeah. why the Franklin Project exists. If we don't start to challenge some of this, and if we don't start to push people to get more active and engaged and ask that question of, so tell me again, why were you opposed to a January 6th commission? I'm not sure I understand the rationale behind Mm -hmm. that because in my everyday life, if there's a problem, you know, if, if one of my kids has a problem or, you know, I have a friend who has a problem or whatever, after we've solved it, we'll step back and go, well, what could I have done differently? I mean, we ask that of ourselves. Why are we not asking that of our leaders? I'll tell you, to go back to your original question, Perry, about what, what is Franklin going to do to address this, this sort of thing? The one thing we're not going to do is a one-size-fits-all approach. We are not going to just do one thing and hope that it works and throw a lot of money at it and, and insist that it works. <laughs> we are leaving ourselves a ton of elbow room to acquire from the country best practices. You tell us what's working. And then we will tell that to everyone else. So one of the big roles that Franklin plays is amplification of what works, not telling people what to do. Um, and we're not pretending to know the answers to all the questions. So to what Aaron was saying, partnerships is big because there are people out there doing great stuff. Well, let's find out what some of that stuff is and tell everybody about it. Education is big. So we're going to design our own content and in a, in a non-patronizing way, get people a little bit smarter about what's going on, what their responsibilities are, as well as their rights, you know, equipping people with this sort of information, engaging people, telling them that this, these are some, now, now these are some of the things that you can actually go do. Now that you've been exposed to a lot of the things that we've been talking about for the last hour, go to a school board meeting and put it into practice, you know, feel what it feels like to be a more active citizen. Then we start to build the kind of momentum we need. It's interesting because really what you're doing is you're saying that the culture of the Franklin Project is the exact thing you're looking for and asking for from voters, which is is to say, (laughs) we don't have all the answers. Um, We're interested in best practices. We're willing to back up and see where our thinking might be a little wrong or askew. Um, And so we're going to treat our culture the way we're asking voters to treat their vote. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. interesting that you bring that up because our team is made up of very diverse 
people who've worked in politics, people who have never worked in politics came from the corporate world. We have Republicans, we have Democrats, we have people who don't identify as either or recover or are recovering from whatever they thought they were before. Um, but it's a team of people. And that is core to our culture at the Franklin Project is we have this same kind of debate and dialogue with each other when we're talking about, well, how do we how do we present that in a way that is unbiased, but will but will push people to ask deeper, harder questions? Because we've all come to the conclusion on our team that pre-partisan, we have a lot more in common yeah. than we think we do on a, on a purely political level. So you know what? Let's take the politics out of it. Is it possible? Sure. Let, let's just remove it from the table for a little bit and let's talk to each other about what we want to get done and how things ought to be. Then we can slowly reintroduce the political aspect to it. But we, we've, got to, we've got to start in the world before there was a Republican and Democratic Party. Will you be putting out more videos the way the Lincoln Project you know, so effectively did during the, uh, the election cycle? Yeah, There's absolutely. A- there's a lot of, you know, uh, continual content creation that's going on with our yeah. team. We've got a fun campaign plan for July 4th. We want to make sure people remember what July 4th is actually all about, not just Good. beer and hot dogs. And so it really is important that we continue to push out that content because that's how people learn these that's days. That's how people, yeah, people yeah. consume it in little clips like that. Your, your, your clip on civility was very, was very good. We want to meet people where they are. Right. You know, so perhaps an older demographic skew might frankly be a little bit turned off by stuff that's a little too snackable, but the younger demographic skew, that's what they want. So we're going to find out what people want, where they are, and then give them what they want and give them what they need, frankly. So if a, you know, perhaps an older person wants to sit down and read 600 words, we're going to get it for you. You know, if somebody wants to, you know, can, can get a little bit more actively involved through a tweet or a TikTok or an Instagram, well, we're going to be there too. Um, I think it's really important for us to continually remind ourselves that the way we view the way things ought to be probably isn't the right, <laughs> probably isn't the right approach. Uh, so we spend a lot of time talking to people and asking them what they what they need. You know, we're also looking at content from a from a non political perspective. A lot of the content that you see out there that comes from political organizations is generally uh, generated by the same kind of people in, in, in the content world. We purposely went out of our way to work with a movie trailer producer to design some of our content. Why? Because movie trailers, as entertaining as they are, are very focused and objective-based. The point of a trailer is to put a butt in the seat. It's not to entertain you. The entertainment comes once you get there. You know, so we, we talked to a trailer producer who's done some amazing work that I'm sure everybody has heard of before with some big name movies. And we said, well, how would you do it? You know, how would you, how would you convince someone that January 6th is not an, an, is not an anomaly? In fact, it's the kind of thing that has happened all over the world. And they came back to us saying, well, what you need to do is equate what happened on January 6th with what is going on in Myanmar and Venezuela and other places, and then do a reveal where all of a sudden it's like, oh, hell, this is America. You know, that's the kind of thinking that we want to inject into our, into our content. Also, we, you know, we take a fresh, a full appreciation for, certain of a, uh, for people of a certain age, and Aaron and I fall into that category, of Schoolhouse Rock. I mean, you remember that back in the day? Yeah. Well, you're, you're both smiling. Well, there's, there's absolutely an entertainment value to Schoolhouse Rock, but it's got a deeper value 
that stuff is remembered for decades. So if we can craft content that is that sticky and useful and actually teaches you something that you can, that you can apply success. I, I can still sing the preamble to the constitution. Right. I got it. I got it. I, I got to tell you a little, a quick little anecdote about the constitution. My high school senior government class teacher said at the end of the, at the, at the, toward the end of our final exam, he said, all right, no, I know we didn't study this per se, but if anybody, whoever can write down word for word, the preamble of the constitution, that will be half of your final exam, yeah. expecting the entire class to go, well, forget it. Forget. Well, Clint Hodder sitting in the back of the classroom slowly hummed the song <laughs> yes. while the rest of us wrote and 32 people in that class got an A and the, and the teacher was like, all right, how did that happen? I, I watched right. you. You didn't cheat. <laughs> That's right. I'm not, we're not, we're not going to sing it here. I, I'm not going to make the audience, we we're, we're not, we're not going to dare make the audience listen to any of us sing it, but I'm going to, fi- I'm going to find that clip and I'm going to, um, I'm going to post it on, on Twitter from that schoolhouse rock episode, which is sensational. And wouldn't it be nice if how a bill becomes a law actually was the way a bill becomes a law these days? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So I I have to ask this um, before we wrap, because I want to make sure this gets in the Lincoln project, you know, ran into some trouble and really had to address their governance because of not being transparent enough about how uh, money was being spent. Um, uh, some of the founders had, um, you know, there was some concern about self-dealing because the founders had their own consulting businesses and donations to the Lincoln Project were being spent with the the, the consulting agencies owned by some of the founders. So how is the uh, how is the um, uh, the Franklin Project being funded? And speak to us about how you'll avoid some of these issues with respect to transparency and how the money is going to be spent. I'll, I'll take the first part of that. I mean, I, I, we have been really deliberate in how we have approached the work. We're a really small team. Um, we, you know, we work with different agencies, just like anyone else does. We're a 501c4, so we report differently than the Lincoln Project does. Um, and so we're absolutely focused on making sure we work within the framework of what a 501c4 C4 is set out by the IRS to work. You know, I think the other thing for us, it's, it's been culture and building a team really small um, and bringing them on as we go. Um, You know, the Lincoln project, they were building the airplane as they were flying it. No, I mean, I don't think anyone there really thought that they would grow and, and move as quickly as they did. We have the luxury of like, being smaller and being able to be more nimble and move as we go. So, I mean, we're, we are probably overly um, uh, cautious in how we function uh, within that scheme. And so I I don't, I don't, we've, we've never had any of those challenges. um, And I think are very comfortable telling people exactly how we spend our money, which it shows up on the website. It's all content. Right. I think okay. it's also important to to for for your listeners to know that good news is no news, right? I used to be in the news business. Good news doesn't get reported. Bad news gets reported, even right. if it's only partly true. Two independent audits were done for Lincoln: one on governance and one on the finances. Both were released publicly. the The governance one was released yesterday, and. I'm, I think Lincoln probably begged reporters as, as, as much of a bulldog as you were when things were a little bit tricky, why not write about this stuff? 
eh, it's good news. Can't be bothered. So we have to take everything that is reported with a little bit of a grain of salt. I mean, that's something we ought to do anyway. I mean, the, yeah. the press aren't perfect and the press needs to be held to account just like leaders yeah. do. You know, that's, that's why newspapers used to have ombudsmen and I don't see very many of, of those around anymore these days. Yeah, you're right. They don't report on that. I saw that yesterday and the Lincoln Project seems to have really cleaned up their act in terms of transparency. And, and personally, speaking for myself, I don't think anybody should progress. I mean, this is important work. People should get paid for their work. And um, it's important to be transparent, though. So it's it's there's no surprises, and um, that's you know obviously important when you're asking for donations. We agree, a- absolutely. 100%. I want to go off that that point that that good news often isn't reported. Um, yesterday, there was an exchange between General Milley and yeah. uh, Congressman Gates, and General Milley said, and here's a quote: "What's wrong with understanding the country which we are here to defend?" and um, Man, that made me really proud, you know, um, and I think that, again, that's what you're asking voters to do. What's wrong with understanding the country you're here to vote on, right? Well, and so I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on what he said yesterday and whether you think that was a, as big of a moment as Philip Bump from The Washington Post thinks it is. I think it's a big <laughs> moment. I mean, but I'm a, I'm a military brat, so of course I would be all in favor of what, what Millie said. But the other thing that Millie said in his response to Getz, which I think is, is even more important. It's like West Point is a university, just like Yale and Harvard and Virginia Commonwealth. They're all, it's just a university too. And you know what? I read Lenin. I read Marx. It doesn't make me a communist. So what's the point in reading things that you may ultimately disagree with? To become aware of other points of view, not to indoctrinate you necessarily. <laughs> necessarily. That, that's, not, that's not the goal of education. It shouldn't be the goal of education. The goal of education should be to expose people to lots of different viewpoints without regard to where you're going to land on these viewpoints. You know, if I, if I were a teacher, I would love to expose people to lots of different viewpoints and be completely agnostic as to what they ultimately believed in. That's up to you to decide. But unless you're exposed to everything or as many things as possible, then ask yourself, what then are you using to form your opinions? Probably a pretty narrow scope of information. And I think that's just troubling and dangerous and unproductive. And I've Tell- got a four-star general behind me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we are fans of what you're doing and we really, really want to see you succeed. So tell everyone where they, should, where they can find you, where they should follow you. Um, and how they can get involved, where they can send a buck, 10 bucks, a hundred bucks, a thousand bucks laid out for us. First of all, go to franklinproject.us, sign the democracy pledge. Um, if, if you don't want to sign the pledge, just please live it, um, adopt it as part of your life. Um, that's the, that's the minimum of what we ask you to do is, is make the, make the tenets of the pledge part of your everyday life. Um, and you know, if you want to donate, you can do that on our website at franklinproject.us. Um, and the Twitter handles and the social handles are all on that as well. Good. I can tell you what those are. So Twitter is at Franklin P R O J U S. Facebook is the Franklin project U S and Instagram is franklin.us. The Franklin Project. Go check it out. Thanks for coming. Thank you guys so much. Thank Thank you. This has been fun. So, Ed, that was an absolutely fascinating conversation because I feel like that was a conversation that you and I love so much. Yeah. Yeah. I really wanted to have them on when I found out it existed. I want them to succeed so badly. I would even say 
we are all desperate for their success. Yeah, it would be a really big win for the country if the Franklin Project really took off, found support, gained traction, and there should be no one that objects to that. No one. You know, Greg had this thing that I will take with me going forward, which is this idea of being pre-partisan and that that's really where we should meet our friends is before the partisanship, right? And meeting them where before we get into all the other stuff, can we agree that we love democracy? Can we agree that more people participating in democracy is better for democracy? And can we agree that we love this country? And I just feel like, you know, a friend of mine once told me about the 80-20 rule. And he said, you know, most relationships, 80% is great, 20% is a struggle. But because we're all interested in improving, we hyper-focus on the 20%, so much so that it starts to feel like it's 80%. And I just wonder if that's kind of what we're doing here as well. Meaning in our country, you know, this divide that we go so crazy over and we're so, you know, you're an enemy, you're an enemy, you know, you're the worst, you're the worst. And I'm just wondering if it's just that we've lost our way in this 80-20 rule. And we've, and so that's why I liked what he was saying about being pre-partisan, that it's getting back to the 80%. Yeah. It's been my experience that if you can get past the partisanship and people's shield, you know, to defend their identity and their tendency to be strident about things they feel strongly about. If you can get past all that and they feel like you're not coming at them and you can just, you know, break down the issues. In my experience, we're not that far apart, I think, you know, with a lot of the people we think we might be. You know, not it, it, I'm not talking about coming to full agreement. I'm saying that the divide isn't really as wide, I think, as people think if they just kind of stop and patiently, you know, and in good faith say, you know, try to understand where the other person's coming from. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's a problem. On with, some issues. Yeah, well, that's a problem with being too tribal one way or the other, because once your brain is pretzeled, someone else within your borders is the enemy. Yeah. I think that you've caused the 20% to be 100%, and you're not able anymore to find your way really to peace. Like that's what, you know, you and I've talked about this a lot. It's just such a bad trade to be this angry because a party wants me to be this angry. Because why would I trade trade in my vote so that they can give me back anger and hatred? How do you think you are with your friends or family members or anyone who's close to you in your personal life um, with respect to political disagreements? Do you think you reach the level of civility that you hope to at all times? Well, I would not say that I re- I've reached that level of civility that I've hoped to at all times. Um, that would not be correct at all. You know, for me, um, I have a lot of friends who think very different political thoughts than I do. The vast majority of those discussions, I'm talking 90 to 95 percent, have been wonderful conversations where we have come out of that with a really a deeper understanding of each other. And and there's 5 to 10% where I feel like those conversations are, are toxic or unhealthy because they include a level of anger that I just don't believe is productive. And I think that that's where those conversations, I, I just walk away from those. 
when I see someone losing their mind with me, mm-hmm. it's just like, yeah, this is not worth the journey for me. There's nothing we're going to get out of this. And I, and I at least know enough to know that. How do you feel? Well, um, I, I feel like I had always been really good, you know, at tolerating different points of view. Um, I've always been able to um, be open-minded with my very liberal friends. And I've always been uh, patient with my very conservative friends, you know, not being a member of one of the two parties, always trying to maintain, you know, my independence. It's sort of, I guess, my personal brand to really try to understand where someone else is coming from. I always felt like I I was good at that. The reason I asked you the question is because I feel like you have gotten better in recent years. You know, I've known you a long time and I feel like I've gotten a little bit worse. Well, that's not good because I only, I would say I've gotten better because of you. Well, that's nice of you to say. Um, But you know, I feel, I feel like it's been harder for me in the past couple of years because I, I I really, I, I really do try to see the other side of things. And I've struggled a lot with, um, the degree to which people I know who are intelligent and thoughtful and who I would uh, rely upon in certain arenas of life, you know, I've been surprised to the degree to which, you know, I know people who have absorbed lies and accepted lies and haven't wanted to confront reality just because they were so um, deeply connected to certain ideological beliefs that they couldn't accept that someone they look to to be the, the 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 carry forward those beliefs was so deficient in other ways that t- to the point where I believe it was disqualifying. Yeah, yeah. I I um, look. I I obviously connect with that. I think that you've done a great job of um, really helping me understand that. Um, Persuasion is only going to happen on this stuff when you really can hear what someone else is saying and you really can put yourself in their shoes. And, you know, I think Greg said it well in the podcast, which is that when you are just waiting for someone to stop talking so you can then make your point, Mm -hmm. I think that that's when um, you've touched your brain. Yeah. And we, I'm, you know, I'm glad we talked about it in, in the podcast episode, this idea of you should be able to know what will change your mind. Yeah, that's right. You know, we should, we should all be persuadable. That doesn't mean that you sacrifice your principles, but we should be persuadable if the evidence and the facts um, dictate that, that we should be persuaded. Yeah, that's right. And I think that if you are a person who has a knee-jerk reaction to any information that doesn't comport with your version of the world, I think you need to recognize that you're at risk of really damaging your opportunities and damaging your perspectives that you, this is what I keep talking about, that ability to be tough enough to deal with a fact that might not be convenient and handle that and absorb it and accept it as a fact until until you can be proven otherwise. And I think that, that that knee-jerk reaction of just, well, it's the Washington Post or whatever you want it to be, um, I think that just dismissing it that quickly um, doesn't serve your own interests very well. 
and it does serve the interest of the parties, which is what they want. I agree. So uh, should we leave it there? Yes. Well, Ed, thanks so much. This is another great conversation. Uh, so you can find us, The Head and the Heart, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Podcast One, and Spotify. And you can find us on Twitter at head underscore heart underscore pod. And please go and find The Franklin Project. Read what they're about. Take the democracy uh, uh, oath and um, learn more about the organization. Consider giving if you believe in the mission, uh, because we sure um, we sure do. Finally, we'd like to thank Casey Morris for being a, just a fantastic producer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>